Listener Production. Brooke Boney and Linda Mariano's Dream Club. Hello and welcome to Brooke and Linda's Dream Club, where each week we work at the sandwich shop of culture. <laughs> and whack the best condiments of moments on our fresh, tasty bread to serve you in this podcast feast. And this week, me, Linda Mariano, is not joined by the OG Wolfie, Brooke Boney. She couldn't hang out with us this week. So instead, I'm welcoming in an honorary, beautiful Wolfie and a very close friend of mine. She's a journalist, a presenter, she currently hosts Insight on SBS. She's a storyteller at large. It is Kumi Taguchi. I'm doing my own clapping. Hi, Linda. Hi, Kumi. I'm feeling like all excited and a little shy, even though we see each other at least once or twice a week. Not only do we see each other often, but Kumi and I are always sending each other voice messages throughout the day and yeah. just letting us know what snacks we're eating, what we're stir-frying that night for dinner, yep. how we're feeling about certain relationships, what shows we're watching. So basically this is like when Brooke and I hang out, just eavesdropping on what we think about the most important things, right? Exactly. It's so cool to be here. I've been kind of excited all morning. So here we are. I'm so excited as well. And, you know, Kumi, you and I, the last time we would have been on air together would have been going back almost 10 years, do you think? I reckon it would be almost 10 years. I was hosting Weekend Breakfast at the time on the ABC and you would come in and do a little kind of cool entertainment spot and I'm like, she is way too cool for us. (laughs) She is way too cool to be on ABC News 24, but I'm owning it. And I remember just thinking, if only I was half as cool. Oh, shut up. I I remember running into you at the lobby and you're wearing a leather jacket and I thought, (laughs) this woman, she is not just the news. She is culture. (laughs) She's culture with a K and an A. (laughs) Okay, so this week is a big one. We're going to be covering Virgil Abloh's legacy and importance in the artistic and specifically fashion world. The Grammy nominations are out for 2022. Little confession, didn't know half of them, but happy to own it. We're going (laughs) to be talking about those. And we are going to be holding a little book club corner as well and telling you what we're getting into. So call me, let's get into it. Let's do it. Dream Club. The first thing that we're going to talk about this week is something that's, I guess, starting it off on sort of a sad moment, definitely, but also a celebration. The very sad passing of Virgil Abloh. You might have seen splashed all over the news, all over social media. If the name doesn't ring a bell, he is someone that is touted as an iconic figure in terms of contemporary artistic worlds. He transcended fashion, music. He was a longtime collaborator of Kanye West. To give you the backstory, Virgil Abloh is the guy that started the Off-White brand, a brand that is synonymous with taking hype beast and streetwear fashion to high fashion. He is just the trickle-down effect of what Virgil Abloh has done over the years is 
monumental in terms of creativity. About 10 years ago, he became really good friends with Kanye West. He became the creative director of Kanye's agency, Donda. He did the artwork for Yeezus, for the Jay-Z record, Watch the Throne. He had a show on Apple Music because he was a massive music head. He was a DJ. He was totally amongst the music scene. He was kind of the epitome of cool. He was an architect by design. You could kind of go on and on about Virgil Abloh. And then a couple years ago, he was also made the artistic director of Louis Vuitton, the first and most prominent black figure in that world as well for Vuitton. So he has passed away after a kind of long running battle with cancer at the age of 41. And people are really shocked by this. Yeah. And when you list off everything that he did. All the tributes are kind of like, this guy worked his butt off. He never stopped. And you say 41. To me, that's kind of a legacy that's left by someone who's 70 or 80. And what I find with the fashion world, because so many of the tributes have come from the fashion world, is that it's often within that space only. And you're kind of like, okay, here's a name that I didn't really know. And here's a name that lots of other people know. But what is amazing is the number of tributes coming from so many different sections of any level of creativity. So I learned that he had died because a friend of mine who's a chef, a Japanese chef, Mm. a sushi chef, posted on his Instagram, I wish we had always met. I wish I'd had a conversation with you about creativity. I'm I'm so sad that you've died. And I just thought, wow, it's unusual for someone in a world that is often seen as slightly untouchable and slightly unreachable and creatively slightly out of the norm Mm. to have such a wide ranging influence. And, um, and I heard that, you know, he'd kept his illness uh, quiet. Not many people knew. So I was kind of looking back at his Instagram and he was just at the Met Gala a couple of months ago in this amazing outfit. This was September, 2021 on those steps, walking up and I was looking at him going, you knew you're really sick. You know, you probably know that you don't have a lot of time. And he looked so healthy and he looked so well. And there's something, I think, quite shocking about it because so many people didn't know. Isn't that extraordinary, that kind of real line between the public life and the private? You never know the struggle that someone is going through. You never do. And I I mean, I think of how incredible fame like his. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know... If if you were really sick, would you tell everyone and take them on that journey? Probably not. Mm. You know, it's 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 that funny line between there's a public figure, but why does everything they're going through need to be public? And and I suppose that's when people speak out about something and they say, I'm doing this, I'm letting people know I'm X, Y, Z, because at least other people will then understand what this thing is I'm going through. But clearly he was you know, still motivated to create. A lot of his posts were still about things that he was creating, things he was shooting, um, you know, music he was making in the last couple of weeks. Actually, that's how I found out about his death was that it wasn't a, a post from a fashion world. I saw all of that kind of later, but it was because a bunch of my friends who were all in the music world, right? so like people that had collaborated with him over the years, people that had DJed with him over the years, actually the girl that introduced me to him on the streets of Paris years ago, had thrown parties with him in Paris and had been posting about him. And I went, that's a photo of her DJing with Virgil. Why is she posting that now? Um, But 
it's one of those things where you see everyone from Hayley Bieber to Justin Timberlake to Nike, who he'd done heaps of work with, Ikea, who he had worked with, um, Hayley Bieber, BTS, all these people kind of pouring in these tributes. So I just think it's, you know, it also has reminded me what a beautiful record, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy and Yeezus (laughs) are. So it's reminding me to go back and listen to that and also just kind of keep creating. And mm. and he, you know, when he came up in the fashion world and when he started off white, he kind of said fashion needs to be invigorated. It feels tired and it needs a change. And he'd grown up amongst hip-hop culture and streetwear and that stuff wasn't on catwalks back then. That stuff wasn't seen as high fashion. And now, I mean, that's all you that's all you see. Yeah, and so that untouchability of fashion, I often think it's the trickle-down thing, you know. The, the the fact that I think there was some weird stat the other day about how many guys in the UK wear um, sneakers to the office, you know. Really? This, yeah, this is like a – this is a world where, you know, you wore a suit and you wore good leather um, – <laughs> leather pants. Leather pants. You were going to say leather pants. <laughs> leather shoes. But basically <laughs> so there's something like 60 70% of – men wear some form of sneakers or street shoes to the office. And I'm talking about banking jobs, talking about corporate jobs. That's Virgil, baby. Yeah, that's the trickle-down effect. There was a tweet that I actually loved this morning, um, a uh, content warning about to come up. Um, Woman tweeted, Virgil Abloh lived the shit out of his life. Let that be the lesson. And I love that. It's kind of like, you know, there's something about living a full, busy, creative life and he still seemed to have time for his family and raise his kids. And and there's something really beautiful about that because, you know, we think that we have time. That's the weird thing about us as human beings. We think we have time. Mm. We think we can have our 70s and 80s, you know, rocking on a porch. We don't know. And it's nearly like he lived life with that in mind every day. I don't know when my time's going to be up. So I'm just going to do this and I'm going to do the DJing and I'm going to create this for Louis Vuitton and I'm going to paint this amazing mural on a building in the middle of New York and I'm going to do X, Y, Z and why not do this and why not do that? And there's something super inspiring about that, just living a non-conventional life where you think every single day that I wake up could be my last. So you know us Wolfies love music. We're listened to all the time. I know that you are as well, dancing around your living room, your kitchen, maybe chopping up some vegetables, listening to a new record. Well, the 2022 Grammy Award nominations have been announced. A whopping 86 categories. 86 so. categories. There were some of these I was like, what are they? So, yeah, you've got like, you know, rock, pop, blah, 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 but there's reggae, religion, spoken word. Yep, spoken word. There's children's, there's comedy, there's musical theatre, there is every different. You know what I I actually do love amongst the categories, amongst the kind of big ones that I get really excited about, like best rap album. There's also best melodic rap album. So it's genres and then subgenres. And, of course, yes, the big ones. Album of the year, song of the year, record of the year, which is different to song of the year. And, you know, there's some... Big people on there that have been nominated for a number of different awards. People like Justin Bieber, Olivia Rodrigo, Taylor Swift is nominated for her album as well. Doja Cat nominated, Kanye West, Donda Record. But the guy that's actually nominated for the most awards of the year Mm -hmm. is someone that 
I had not actually listened to John Batiste. John Batiste. Now, he's earned 11 nominations and spans seven fields, seven of those categories. So what kind of musician does that? Who is he? Who's John Baptiste? John. So John. John Baptiste created a very joyful record in the last year. It's the We Are album. He is really known as being the music director for the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Um, he's a really respected kind of veteran jazz soul musician. When you listen to the album, which I did this morning, and I said, Linda, why have you not listened to this Mm. record yet? This record is clearly this multi-genre classic that's so well respected across the board. You'll hear it and it is, It's you know what, he almost sounds a little bit like a slightly more soulful, more jazz-centric version of Andre 3000, Mm. a little bit in the storytelling, but laden across a very much tight musicianship, huge soul scene, huge jazz scene, a really respected icon in the New Orleans music scene as Mm. well. So listen to the album. It's called We Are. Some people were saying, you know, there's a particular song that's nominated for Song of the Year, and I was thinking about this. The thing about the Grammy Awards is that the nominations kind of span this real diverse range of not just artists but levels of potential success. So the song that he's got nominated for Song of the Year, I think if you go onto Spotify, has got 5 million streams. Mm. And in the grand scheme of, you know, best records of the year, that's tiny when you compare it to a song that it's going up against. Driver's Licence by Olivia Rodrigo, and that's a song that surpassed a billion streams. You know, so it's... it's So the nominations are then being made about influence across the industry, production, um, respect, respect. I mean, that's kind of cool, actually, because then it doesn't just come down to metrics. And I'm not arguing against metrics, but it doesn't come down to only metrics. And then you throw in something like TikTok, for example, and that a song that might be going off there then has a massive influence in how many times it's streamed on Spotify, for example, and that's a different kind of audience, not dissing it, but it's a different kind of way to measure the worth of a song, the worth of an artist, the worth of an album. I have to admit I've got some favourites in terms of who's nominated for big awards as well because I think... One of the things that I've loved so much about music recently, particularly in this last year, is when you look at the albums of the year, you're seeing a lot of females there. You're Mm. seeing um, racial diversity. You're seeing sexuality diversity as well. You've got Lil Nas X on there being nominated for Montero, Call Me By Your Name, for his entire record as well. I'm kind of crossing my fingers that someone like him or an Olivia Rodrigo will kind of take the reins and kind of wipe the floor with the Grammys. Because then when I look across other genres, looking at the nominees for kind of best rock album, it's a sea of white men. Yeah. <laughs> Still, I have to say, like, you know, you you look across the genres and you look at the rap ones and there's, you know, your Doja Cats, Her, Saweetie, Lil Nas X, and then I look at the kind of rock category and it's Kings of Leon, Weezer, Paul McCartney, Foo Fighters, all nominated in a row. And it doesn't feel as progressive as maybe some of the Mm. other categories. Do you reckon that's why they've added 
so many categories. <laughs> I don't want to be cynical. But, I don't know. But I wonder, you know, it's kind of like if there's a certain genre <laughs> of music that is being essentially dominated by a certain pocket of white artists. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I was going to say, like, how, you know, how influential are the awards when you look at the Grammys, say, what comes after that? I often look at the Golden Globes and they often then dictate the winners potentially of mm. the Academy Awards. You know, if you win Best Actress at the Golden Globes, you're more likely to win it at the Oscars. What knock-on effect does a win have at the Grammys? I feel like it's a, it's kind of a popularity credibility win. If that makes sense, would that make sense? Yeah. You know, it's, it kind of means you could, you know, not to be cynical, but you could charge more for playing for headlining a festival. True. You know, we look at people, like think of the esteem that comes with, and I was looking through the nominations list and there's a few Australians on there. Yeah. The Kid Leroy is nominated for Best New Artist. Um, Rufus Dussault nominated for the second time um, for a Grammy for Best Dance and Electronic Song. Hiatus Coyote nominated for Best Progressive R&B. I feel like those titles being nominated for a Grammy have a sense of weight to them and a credibility that propels you forward in terms of opportunity, wealth, what you could get. Does it mean that you necessarily create better music or that you are actually better than someone that was potentially snubbed by the Grammys or didn't complete an album per se and just released EPs so they couldn't be nominated for album of the year. You know, that stuff is all in question and there's a lot of, you know, behind committee politics I'm sure that go on. But I think the the credibility is still there and the the weight that comes with it afterwards. What so really- what I'm saying is I wouldn't hand back a Grammy if I if I <laughs> yeah. win one. Excuse me, I don't point. want this. Well, the Grammys is going to be streamed uh, Monday, January 31st, I think. So in the meantime, have a squeeze through the nominations list and I think it's just a nice reminder to go, oh, I haven't listened to that Doja Cat record in full. I'm going to go back and remind myself why that album or the Her album yes. deserve to be nominated. <laughs> and Linda Mariano's Dream Club. So we love books. You and I talk about books a lot, right? We do. We talk about writing. We pretend that we, we read. We pretend that we, that we read. Now, I'm not one to often read something that someone recommends. I don't know why. I just what like to come. It? I don't know what that is. I'm going to have to interrogate that with my counsellor next time I have a session with her. <laughs> but this book was recommended to me by a colleague, we happened to run into each other in the hairdresser and we started talking about Succession, that incredible series, and about dynasties and, you know, generations of wealth. And he's like, you've got to read this book called Empire of Pain because it's literally, it's a dynasty around the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm quite interested in addiction as a topic and like understanding it, right? So this book is called Empire of Pain and it's by Patrick Radden Keefe. And it's the history of the Sackler family who essentially started three brothers, came from a really downtrodden background, um, made themselves into something, studied, studied medicine, started pharmaceuticals, 
started this notion that, in fact, mental illness... Now, this is the time when people would be put into an institution and kind of part of their brain removed because they were schizophrenic or you just essentially kind of numb people. And they sort of thought, what if some of this mental illness was to do with um, brain chemistry and not only to do with genetics or their background? We think of pills and stuff like that as sort of normal. You kind of have antidepressants or you have this or you have this or they have this. It's a pretty new thing when you look Mm. at the history of how our brains were seen and how our emotions were seen. So anyway, these guys essentially started this idea that pain could be treated with a pill. And their pill was, it's renamed as different things, but their pill was OxyContin. And you hear a lot of people talking now about Oxy, how they couldn't get off Oxy, how it was the most addictive thing they've ever had. Mm. And so this book goes into, it's like a thousand pages long. I'm about 20% through and I literally every day I wake up going, when's the next 15 minutes that I can just read a few more pages? Really? When's the next 15 minutes? Because it's just written so well. It's written by a journalist. So it's got this kind of pace. It's got all the facts. You kind of get to know this family and you're thinking, I, I'm not that interested in the pharmaceutical industry and how a family built this thing out of nothing, but it's fascinating. The characters, the egos, and then the way in which they sold this pain relief pill under very questionable f- facts and figures. Mm. And in fact, has been behind the entire opioid crisis, particularly in the United States. And you've seen it happen here as well. And how that happened, how their links with the Federal Drug Administration worked. Um, They even owned the um, scientific journals where there were studies published about the efficacy of the pills that they were marketing, but the people who wrote those studies were paid by them. So it's the most fascinating insight, not an not only into the addiction kind of pill industry, but also the dynamics of a powerful family and what people can do with that power. If you walk through certain art galleries, certain universities in the US, there will be the Sackler name on buildings. They funded buildings. They funded um, Wings of the Met. They funded... um, art galleries, they funded scholarships, so they were philanthropists as well. So a lot of people come to know their name through philanthropy, Mm. but then people started going, where did this money come from and how did they make it? It's absolutely fascinating. Are they the... Is this the story that's behind the TV show Dope Sick? Yes. So I didn't know that. And then my daughter, who's 16, goes, Mum, you've got to see this really cool series called Dope Sick. I start watching it. I literally have got the book next to me on the couch because I can't stop reading it. Yeah. And then I'm like, hang on, I'm sure this is the story I'm reading in this book. That's the book. So if anyone has seen Dope Sick, that's the sort of second generation of this dynasty. Okay. At the moment in the book, I'm kind of still at the the parents of the main guy or the uncle of the main guy okay, in okay. Dope Sick. It's, it's so, so... So good. I couldn't recommend it more. Wow. Okay. Well, I am, you're about, what, a few hundred pages into that book. Yeah. I am in the midst of reading a book that I have seen splashed across almost 
every bookstore. It's like you were saying just then that sometimes you don't want to read the books that people have recommended to you. <laughs> I sometimes feel that way as well and it's to do with TV shows that everybody's watching at the moment or a book that's splashed in every bookstore if I see, you know, the the covers all over. But I thought I'm going to read a book that I think everybody is reading at the moment and it's the new book from Clementine Ford. Now Uh it's her third book. It's called How We Love and it's essentially a memoir of her going through her life looking at the different relationships that have made her who she is and as a result the relationships that make us who we are. So it's platonic love. It's love of her mother, of her father, her first heartbreak, understanding her sexuality. It's a really enjoyable and relatable subject matter. Mm. It almost feels like I'm about halfway through it where she's going through what it was like when she was falling in love for the first time as a young teenager. And you know when you read books like looking for Ali Brandy, or you watch something like Puberty Blues and there's that real kind of tangible Australiana kind of pubic culture. It's this really kind of visceral adolescent, like the language that's used, feeling like an underdog, feeling not pretty enough, Mm. feeling not sexy enough, wanting to get the attention of guys or girls as you're growing up. It's got that real kind of tenderness to it that I really liked and that I didn't know that her writing was like because I've never actually read a Clementine Ford book before and I know that Boys Will Be Boys was so hugely successful just before this but I've kind of dived straight into it. You know when you want to dive into a movie and you're like I'm not going to watch the trailer, I'm not going (laughs) to read any reviews, I'm not going to read about the book at all, I'm just going to go straight in and so I've done that and the more I've read of it, the more I've enjoyed it. Mm. And it's actually been really nice. It's almost like this exercise in kind of forgiving yourself when you were younger and acknowledging that maybe you were a little bit mean to your sweet Mm. self when you kind of look back and you thought you were frumpy or that you weren't good enough or something. It kind of just reminds you that, no, actually you were really sweet and you were a child and you don't need to be so hard on yourself. It's like that sort of, I don't know, a really nice kind of self-reminder. So I haven't finished it yet, but that's the vibe that I'm getting so far. It sounds great and sounds like you spoke about her and the relationships that she formed over her life. It sort of sounds like she's also then reforming a relationship with herself. Yeah. Very sweet. Sounds great. Dream club. Get to hang your washing out slowly and appreciate the fabric. When you're paying for your dinner, add the tip on. Add the tip. 15% at least. These babies have done it hard. When you've been cooking veggies in the oven, keep the oven on and pop a brownie in from the fridge and it'll just warm up so it's Secret Santa for your work Christmas party and make sure you get a great present that has snacks in it. Let's dream. Oh, oh it's our dreaming. <laughs> dreaming, right? 
Just a couple of dreamers. Is that what you sound like when you wake up from a dream? No, I'm like, what the hell? (laughs) Your arms and legs thrashing around. What is going on? Where did my socks go? I go to sleep with socks on and then they're always off. Just my feet get cold. Because your feet get hot with socks on, you know Yeah, but my feet get cold when I get in the bed, Gummy. That's the thing. Yeah, this is a problem. (laughs) This is a problem. This needs deep deconstruction. (laughs) That's what we'll be doing next time Gummy fills in. (laughs) This is our Dream Club update. It's our favourite time of the week because we check in, we do a little D&M with you and we talk about the things that we're, you know, aspiring to that are really inspiring us throughout the week and I did something over the weekend that has left me with such a feeling of joy and warmth and genuine love and positivity and gratitude Mm. seriously all of the words um I went and did some work with Dylan Alcott at Ability Festival, which is a music festival that Dylan Alcott, of course, a listener dude, um, put on in Melbourne. About 4,000 people attended. A wonderful music festival that happened over the weekend. Peking Duck headline, Confidence Man performed. What's So Not performed as well. It was really, really wonderful. But the thing that's so wonderful about Ability Festival is that it's all about giving to the Dylan Alcott Foundation, which creates value for disabilities, visibility, and the way that this festival was run and giving accessibility to people that normally have to say a blanket no to attending events and attending music festivals was just so inspiring and eye-opening. It meant that the whole mood of the day was so positive. Mm. So there were people there with such a diverse range of abilities. So there were people there with, you know, regular able-bodied, able to run around. There were people that were there with low level to mid to high disability living, people that can only attend those sorts of festivals if they have a companion with them to help them manoeuvre around the festival. And being able to speak to the volunteers, the organisers, the artists and the attendees throughout the day was just so wonderful. Understanding that lived experience of how hard it actually is. Gosh, I can imagine how you would come away from something like that with such gratitude, not only for the experience of being around such wonderful people, Mm. but also realising how lucky we have it when we are able-bodied and we don't even necessarily think about something like a music festival, think about the accessibility. For a lot of people, accessibility means do we have a wheelchair ramp? Right, yep. and it's not. That's not it at all. It's like that's the tip of a very big iceberg. Yeah, it was so inspiring to be there, to learn more about it, um, and just know that that is the bar that we should be setting. Yeah, and that's a conversation that I'll like take upon myself to be pushing forward. That sounds so good. I'm so happy for you. Hi. What about you, Kumi? I feel a bit selfish because my inspiration <laughs> is myself <laughs> this week. I feel like I'm halfway through that conversation. I'm thinking, crap, can I change? Can I change my topic? <laughs> no, can I own think it. of something? Own Look, it. I have to say I'm very proud of myself because I've burnt out a couple of times in my career where literally you're just like, I have taken on too many things. 
I'm doing too much, but I'll keep going, 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 going. And then I literally fall in a heap for two weeks, three weeks, a month, but I cannot function. Mm. Um, so over the last few years, I've been really working hard on prevention. So, and it's not kind of like a listicle. It's not like a list in a health magazine. It's just stuff that I've realized works really well for me. So I've got a massive couple of weeks coming up on a number of different levels and I need to have 200% performance brain energy in order to do what I need to do. Um, And about a week ago, I looked ahead in my calendar and I thought, I think I left you a voice message going, how the hell, I'm feeling anxious about this, how the hell am I going to balance everything? And I remember downloading to you in a voice message, just going, I'm feeling really stressed because I'm looking ahead at all the stuff I've got to do. Mm. My brain's going to this space where it's like, how can I do it all? And then we had this philosophical conversation where we're like, actually, when you look at it and when you break it down, it's doable. It's just the thought of all of it that's really hard. So that conversation really helped. And the other thing I thought about, okay, this is all about energy levels. How do I manage my energy levels? And I thought about it like a battery. Instead of me going into this period and draining my battery to below zero, what if I go into this period with my battery at 200% and drain it to 50 by the end of it. So this weekend, I totally, literally closed the blinds physically, metaphorically, (laughs) emotionally. I bunkered down. I did only what was necessary. I knew that I had all my stuff arranged hour by hour from Monday on. So I didn't have to think about it over the weekend. And I did this whole build up my batteries, eat well, sleep well, no shoulds. I should do this. I should call this person. I should go to that get together. I should go for a run. Anytime I said should, I just went not doing it. And it's been a really, I've, I've headed into this week feeling not stressed, knowing it's going to be big, but feeling like I have given myself permission to shut down and close down and sort of um, be still and quiet so that I don't burn out at the other end. I love that. Thank you. The battery mentality. (laughs) And on that note, thank you so much for listening. We've drained our batteries for now. (laughs) Hopefully you're feeling good. Um, We're going to be back next Wednesday with Brooke Boney. But if you want to, please join our Dream Club. Follow us at the Dream Club podcast on Instagram. Hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Leave us a very cheeky review. Oh, and as always, yeah, come on. I can't believe you haven't already. Oh, my God, I can't believe it either. I'm you. so sorry. Tag us in a little pic. Show us where you're listening from and tell a friend. Kumi Taguchi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for hanging out with me. I love you. I love you. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Oh, are we ready? Now. So good. Maybe I'll move that there. Love that. Let's talk about books. A listener production.